Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. I am Julie Norman, and my guest today is Kate Tomlinson. Kate is a nurse who specializes in palliative care, and I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk with her more about why it's so hard to talk about death, what it's like being with people and their families in their last few months, and how society balances extending life with quality of life. We also talk a bit about Kate's previous work with Doctors Without Borders in Central Africa, and also how COVID has, and in some ways hasn't, changed the way we think about both mortality and global health. This was a really interesting chat for me. I hope it's interesting for you too. So here is now my conversation with Kate Tomlinson. All right, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I wanted to start just by asking you, how did you first end up in nursing? I think I always had this kind of ambition to help to, I guess, to help people, which sounds like kind of looking back at it as something that, yeah, a teenager has as a goal and a dream. But um, I guess I was then in thinking about that thought, well, how or where is the best way or how I can do that? And but in a practical way and a hands-on kind of nursing came to mind I had a good friend that was in nursing at the time and um, I think you know whenever you kind of I guess are thrown into into a completely different world you know which I think uh, hospitals and care is you know it is quite and can be overwhelming but it's very um, alien so I do and I do remember washing my first patients and it being a kind of a quite a, a also a, a strange experience because it's although you know personal and intimate it's also you know something that you, you have to get used to. Well and how did you end up working primarily in end-of-life care because that to me seems like a just such a challenging area of healthcare to work so what attracted you to that? My first job after qualification was on a general female oncology ward and although obviously they were treating a lot of women curatively or with treatment there were obviously a lot of women there who who were palliative and who who often sadly died as well on the ward but I kind of I through being there I kind of um, was put in touch therefore with the palliative care team um, and saw how they worked and how they had, were given sort of that time to be with patients and to see the patient as a whole. And I do think that sometimes in nursing, unfortunately, we have a very, which maybe will come out as a bit of a theme today, we have a very medical model sort of approach to, to health where we kind of focus purely on the solution and the cure and um trying to sort of, I guess, trump like human mortality with medicine without necessarily always thinking or thinking about other issues or factors and the individual in front of you. And palliative care is quite holistic. It, it takes and always views the person as the sum total of who they are, um, including their physical symptoms, but their psychological and emotional self and their spiritual being and how they're impacted by their illness you know and I had done a placement as well at a hospice and worked a bit at a hospice which is a very special environment to be that 
is usually very patient focused, very calming, very peaceful and beautiful is in the structure and where they are. So I kind of became, so I planted sort of a seed there in my head that maybe eventually that that is where I would like to work. What is a typical day like in palliative care? Oh, <laughs> so, so I work in the community. So I think it really depends where, where you work. And I work with a caseload of patients. So I, you know, can have about maybe 40 people uh, on a, on my caseload. 40. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the maximum because over that, then it can become a, a bit difficult to manage but but a, a normal day I think a lot of my work involved um, either calling up patients or visiting patients carrying out if it was a new assessment um, you usually would be with a patient for like an hour or an hour and a half um, which is very rare I think in in healthcare to mm. be afforded that time with with one patient and their family uh, a huge part of palliative care is is also supporting the family alongside the patient and their journey. So with that in the community, especially seeing patients, like obviously helping to manage um, symptoms, but also linking in with uh, any social needs. So as a lot of our work is helping to provide and coordinate information around what care is available to support someone to die at home. So linking them into the relevant services or helping them to get uh, care in the home or facilities in the home. But it's also in the assessment, spending that time on on the emotional and psychological aspects and giving them time to talk about their experience. Um, Maybe a lot of them, a lot of the time, there's a lot of anger or frustration or fear and around what is happening or what's going to happen. A lot of people want to die at home, but are afraid of dying at home, mm. especially family members supporting them who maybe have not ever seen anyone die. Um, and a lot of our conversation and work is around being able to support people to, to manage that, that journey together. Mm. And, and how do you support family members? Because that's something I was going to ask you about, because that seems like such a major piece of palliative care and yet like you said my understanding is the profession is obviously quite focused on the patient and medical care for the patient but it seems like bringing the family into this journey is so essential but probably one of the hardest parts of all of it I mean the patients often a lot of the time I think when we're approaching death people have a a, a physiological and emotional connection with what is a about to happen I think uh, even if perhaps they're in denial or anger I think uh, although there are rare uh, cases where people are in total denial but I think there's a lot of uh, it's perhaps sometimes people inwardly know or, or appreciate that their time is shortening whereas family members often obviously are very frightened about losing a loved one and uh, sometimes there's a you know that the journey for them is much, um, I wouldn't say more difficult, but equally difficult and challenging. And, and I think sometimes we also act or help sort of them on that journey as well between, because we meet a lot of people that have been very treatment focused or again around this medical model have, have 
have, have always believed that perhaps there is something else that can help to give more time. And I think sometimes we we work very much with with people to helping them to accept and to that that, that now maybe that this is more that someone is approaching the end of their life and to help them to to deal with that. It's a very I mean, one of the reasons I like working in the area is because of this, I think, journey that you do go on with family as much as with the patient. Mm-hmm. And how has your work changed or maybe not changed during the pandemic? And I was wondering if the pandemic has at all changed the way people think or talk about end of life and mortality. I hope so. <laughs> um Interestingly, from a practical point of view, I don't think my work has, I mean, it has been impacted like all of us, but we didn't do a lot of the caring of COVID patients at home because they died mostly in hospital. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, yeah, practically, we, we mean, yes, we've been impacted by, in other ways, more people wanting to die at home because they can't go into hospital when they, they've been frightened of going into hospital for treatment of other illnesses or otherwise um because of the fear of picking up covid or otherwise they don't want to go in because they're alone because they're not allowed visitors even in hospices and more people have been dying at home which i think is non-covid deaths which i think has been reflected in the data Mm. um which again i think is a positive experience because one of the beliefs i have is that we we really we fear death and dying um and we've medicalized it um and actually because we don't see it um but yet it can be a peaceful experience a lot of the time. And if people, and I think having someone die at home with family around them in a, in a familial environment is, is a very positive experience. And so I think the families who perhaps who wouldn't have normally some, you know, not saying every journey is easy, but a lot of the time have actually appreciated having and being there with their loved one and dying at home. I hope it has changed the conversation around death. I think people are much more open now to understanding that, you know, we are mortal. (laughs) Although on the other hand, I would say we've spent a lot of COVID focusing on saving life at all costs and not again, appreciating that we are mortal. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Sometimes now people are a bit more yeah, open to discussing things that maybe were more difficult before. Why do you think it has been so difficult for society to talk about death? And how would you like to see that conversation change in the future? I think society um, finds it impossible to talk about death because we have advanced uh, incredibly in the last you know 50 years in in medical knowledge and um treatment and extending life so life expectancy is is from what it was a hundred years ago <laughs> nearly double it's extraordinary and i think that thanks to science and to medicine because of it we have got that a privilege now of living so long but on the other hand, I think it, the medical model has, has, has meant that we, we, have, we are so treatment and curative focused that because we have 
yeah, we, we believe it's possible to continually sort of trump mortality with science. And so, and, and therefore, I mean, there has been a shift as well that everything from, you know, with the, the start of the NHS has become much more hospitalized. Mm. So we used to have community deaths because, well, that was where people died and people saw family and loved ones dying at home. But as hospitals became a place of care and uh, safety, more and more people then were treated and died in hospital. Um, so I think it's it was then dying became sort of seen in a way as a failure <laughs> of, of medicine rather, uh, rather than a normal process. We now have we now fear death and we fear dying and we don't see it. Yeah. And, and you've touched a bit on this split between extending life and maybe enhancing quality of life. And I know in the US, there's been a sort of ongoing debate around if someone is expected to die within six months, that they can essentially like choose when to take drugs that would allow them to pass peacefully rather than just waiting for it to happen naturally, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I read an article recently about uh, assisted dying and uh, from a surgeon's pers- perspective who has been diagnosed with a terminal cancer and he feels uh, he's sort of raised again the question around um, dying with dignity and being, a, you know, the, not being allowed to have the option of an assisted death is... Uh, even with the best palliative care that you can have difficult deaths and it should and and suffering up towards the death that therefore we should be allowed more that option with terminal illnesses to be assisted with medication I think I think what is first more important in a way is that the medical world needs to get better at having conversations with patients about realistic and participatory conversations with patients about their options. Because I think we, unfortunately, patients are still given a lot of hope through treatment when perhaps actually realistically the treatment, when even then they've been told it's palliative, they haven't been really given the true side effects and symptoms that the treatment might uh, offer, the poor quality perhaps of life they might have, the increased suffering they might um, have um, over a bit more time. And I think consultants (laughs) really struggle with having those realistic conversations with patients. And I think if patients were given more opportunity perhaps to uh, have declined treatment and have palliative treatment, like decline perhaps invade more invasive treatment that cause worsening symptoms mm. and be given treatment for instead for sim- literally symptoms alone that might arise uh, and in a way the confidence to to, to, to decline mm-hmm. <laughs> treatment then the rather than again I think there's a lot of sometimes conversation around fighting and continuing on and going on and especially for family and then whereas maybe being allowing people to stop and to, to have, yeah, to, 
to stop, keep on going. And then perhaps sometimes I think death might be easier um, and, and less of a struggle because I feel sometimes, especially with oncology and cancers, that continuous treatment causes worsening symptoms and poorer quality of life and more suffering, unfortunately. Um, and then people, and in a way, the assisted dying conversation, I think, needs to come after that. Because mm. I think we're using that as a way as a, sometimes as, as the, the comparable option. Mm. And I think there's a lot of improvement that can be made today in helping people to, to make decisions for quality of life over continuous treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot many more conversations in that in-between space that have that need to happen as well that just aren't being broached at all. Um, And just how has doing this work changed your own personal thinking about life and death and mortality? I mean, I feel, I mean, I'm, whenever you say that you're a palliative care nurse, people are always like, (laughs) oh, you know, I can't imagine doing that or, you know, isn't that really hard? And, you know, it's, isn't it really depressing seeing people die? Um, And I think I couldn't ever have done this job if I didn't have a slightly already uh, value-based sort of around that life is also about death. um, I I don't think I, even with obviously my work abroad with Medicine Sans Frontier, where you see people dying a lot younger and children dying, in very you know obviously in in ways that they don't hear um and you could argue is very unfair and unjust which it is but I also do believe that we are only here for a short while whatever that length of time is and um I don't believe you know you can ever ignore the fact that with life comes death and and in a way it's sometimes it's a it's a real privilege to be on that journey with people, as I said, that's why I do it. I meet people at most vulnerable times of their life. I've seen a lot of death now. So I think in some ways it's it helps me from a personal point of view to appreciate what it is like and what the journey will be for not just me, but for, for people around me, my, my, my family and my parents and being able to support them. I guess that gives me a, a like a personal feeling. I don't fear it as much, but I'm sure I'm sure I've faced with it. I'll have my own uh, quandaries anyway, without doubt. We all do. I, I think, though, I really wish that that people got more of an opportunity to to see it uh, and to to think about it, so it didn't frighten them so much. Mm-hmm. And I was curious in terms of people who you work with or um, just your own process, how much does, does faith or religion play into how people approach death? Like, is there, are there certain communities or um, certain belief systems that maybe people do think about death or think about in a certain way that it's um, not as scary for them? Or do, does that not really play into it all that much uh, when, when people are really faced with it? I'd say that faith does help a lot of people, um, people who have faith uh, and believe that their time, I guess, is dependent on when God or whoever wants them or when, you know, it's decided by them. I think, though, interestingly, sometimes 
though faith can play a role in also in inappropriately treating or, or, or forcing or people choosing treatment because they believe in in life sort of all costs and not and not declining any treatment so actually sometimes conversation around resuscitation are more difficult with people who have faith mm. as they believe it it should um, be offered because it will be God's decision to in in the success of it or not mm. but I can see that it it does provide a calm more of a calm acceptance with some people who have a very strong faith but not always I think uh, I think it's more personality than faith that, mm. that sometimes determines your feelings around death yeah and how much you fear it or have an anxiety around it you're listening to the julie norman show well and you've mentioned uh, msf a number of times or doctors without borders so i want to shift to that and ask you a little bit about your time with MSF, if, if I'm right, you spent a number of years uh, in both Central African Republic and Democratic Republic of the Congo or the DRC. So can you tell me about how you ended up doing MSF and just what that experience was like and what it entailed? I was put in Central Africa Republic uh, on my first uh, placement with them and subsequently afterwards worked with uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, both both very, I say, difficult countries with extensive history of, unfortunately, you know, war and conflict that continues uh, more predominantly in CAR than DRC, but equally in the east of DRC. There's a very complex web of different uh, groups that still continue to to fight, um, and MSF has always place themselves in, in areas obviously of conflict and where access to healthcare is difficult. But they've had a long presence in both of those countries, which sometimes I think also then leads to difficulties because we're a part of the healthcare system as well as as being an, a part of an emergency healthcare system. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And tell me then what what kind of work were you doing there? And I mean, obviously the healthcare that you were providing would probably looked a lot different than it does from your work here in the UK. Oh God, yeah, miles apart. Um, in in CAR, I was working uh, in a hospital supported project, so MSF often tries to support existing healthcare systems rather than take them over. Um, so we were based in, in an area that was yeah, historically very war-torn and still unstable. Um, and there was a hospital there that we had been supporting, I think, since 2016, uh, post sort of the, I think, the, quite a significant civil war. Um, we helped... Um, with providing uh, equipment, medicines, staff, um, and and training and development. So, and I guess what what I was involved with was helping to oversee sort of the nursing activities and staffing. We we were 
unfortunately we were at a base um a couple of kilometers away and because of the uh, the time when i was there it it switched in from had been a relatively peaceful and calm period to unfortunately a period of instability um and in fact the hospital was in the middle of a kind of two conflicting communities and ended up being a bit of a battleground mm. one day um, when we were in the hospital uh, and so restrictions were um, put on our movement um, so after I think a month of being there we were limited between moving from uh, between the hospital and our base and I guess the idea is is trying to provide a service according to the protocols so having which can be very challenging. Obviously, you can imagine around infection control, um, working in incredibly dusty and, and dirty environments. And I think the hospital was host to every single animal, um, <laughs> dogs, chickens, pigs, um, but trying to create a you know perimeter to get them out, making or trying to create food that was hygienically prepared, mm-hmm. um, trying to provide nursing practices that followed um, as much as possible, you know, best practice. It's, um, but you, I don't know, there's something about also, you know, even when we left, you know, you feel the privilege of being able to, when, when people who, especially people who you've worked with have to stay. And so I guess returning yours, you know, you, you feel that there is like a, that support that is, to, to try and help sort of provide basic health care is so important and to as much as possible work alongside the local population. Um, MSF is not historically a target. Um, so there is some new safety in recognizing that that you're, you know, you're needed and wanted by both sides often. And, and in terms of coming back to, I guess, what was that? like not not just um reverse culture shock but I guess how do you not compare everything to the reality that you lived in in car and DRC like it's um I think sometimes it's hard to yeah to see kind of the day-to-day struggles that may people have somewhere like the UK or the US and not automatically in your mind like compare it to fragile contacts, humanitarian situations, violent conflicts when you've lived in those. So I was wondering how you managed to balance that. Yeah, it is It is an extremely difficult um, comparison sometimes. I mean, the response of the UK to a pandemic, I mean, the resources that we have thrown at it and the money that we have spent, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, to have that privilege um, to be in a country that that has that capacity. I mean, I do worry and fear that eventually the populations that will be worst impacted by this will be poorer populations through the stopping of programs, through the reduction of funding, um, through the well, the chaos of the lack of supply or services or facilities due to all of the world lockdown yeah it's it 
and it is something that why I think eventually I would I want to balance my career between the two worlds because I think unfortunately not enough people have seen what it is like in other countries to appreciate uh, I know that there is um, inequality and poverty here um, but the richness of an opportunity and wealth that we have in comparison to other countries is something I don't think people appreciate enough and and I want to still have that, I guess, root in reality and continue, therefore, in the future to do work abroad. Well, I'll, I'll just end then where we end the podcast. If you have any book recommendations that you'd suggest for listeners. Yeah, I, I thought of two. I thought of one fiction, well, sort of fiction and one nonfiction. The fiction is The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, um, which is about a Baptist family that decides to go on missionaries into the Congo in 1960 and it's a also although fiction and fictional um, account of a uh, family but it's very much based in the history of what happened in the Congo um, during I guess um, liberation and post-colonization and it's but it's beautifully written um, as well and I would thoroughly recommend that one Otherwise, the nonfiction is one that kind of touched on hatch a lot of the themes that we've talked about today is um, called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Um, he actually also did, I think, a Reef Lecture series. Um, and he looks at like the, the history, I guess, around death and, you know, where we, we used to die and where we do now and how medical advances have pushed, I guess, the boundaries of our survival further each year um, and looking at how, kind of how therefore we've become detached to this notion of mortality. And he really sort of looks at it and questions it um, and thinks about how to, I guess, die well. So, and how, helping us to think about, you know, how in doing that, how to live well now, but perhaps but by having those questions and conversations with yourself and your family. Great. Well, Kate Tomlinson, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Julie. Thank you once again to Kate Tomlinson. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to a friend, subscribe, and give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, feedback, or guest suggestions, you can email me at norman.julie at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter at drjulienorman2. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.